Hello, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Unstoppable Rise, a resource that helps motivated individuals press on towards the mark of self-actualization using, of course, a blended tool set of old school wisdom and new breed tactics to help achieve this end. My name is Sim, I'm going to be your host, and today we're going to be diving into the Psychology Manifesto. So welcome, welcome, welcome once again to another episode of Unstoppable Rise. And it's the first time I'm recording a podcast since, I believe, January or February when I was talking about Cornerstone. And it seems like it's been quite a bit. So probably some people, some of y'all would be like, ah, Sim, where the hell you been? Well, that question has many answers, (laughs) depending on how you look at it. But um, simply put, there's been a lot of movement um, in my sphere of the world right now. And things have been picking up in many areas. And in regards to Unstoppable Rise, I've been on Twitter a lot. So I've been posting a lot on Twitter, having a new audience to reach out to there, and posting daily. So that is where I mainly am at. But then personal-wise, just living life. I do have a I do have a life outside of this. I do have other career things I have to do. So there's that. And then obviously living social life in 2022 the first time this is the first time I've really been social since yeah since right right before COVID so 2019 that was the last time I was really really out there but this summer I've been going out living the life of a single man and everything that entails uh making moves in general so Yeah, but this episode for Unstoppable Rise, going to be talking about one of the pillars for self-development, for growth, and that is obviously psychology, which is what we're going to be diving into today, and my plan with all of these manifestos is to really paint a 360-degree kaleidoscopic picture of what self-improvement is at its best. So these four pillars, corners, whatever you want to call them, make up Cornerstone, the course that I have out my course. They make up Cornerstone, but they also make up the categorizations on the site. Pretty much anything in self-improvement can be categorized into one of these four pillars, one of them being psychology, and self-improvement has a heavy psychological basis. Um, So this quote-unquote manifesto is pretty much just like a brain dump of 
thoughts on the topic. And these are thoughts that I've been carrying around with me for years since I learned about them. And these are what make up this pillar of this corner of self-development. These are the essential traits. And when we're talking about psychology from a self-improvement, self-development perspective, we're not talking about psychotherapy or psychiatry. That's different. That has to do with the medicative side of therapy and psychology, even though that can be intertwined with self-improvement psychology in general. But usually that is up to registered clinicians to administer that. But self-improvement psychology is personal psychology. It is the psychology of what makes a properly constructed human being, what makes someone, you know, function well in society. And I explain all this in Cornerstone. There's a module dedicated to this, obviously. But having a good psychological grounding is going to help you in many, many areas in your life. And having a frame of reference of good tools, good mental tools to use, it cannot be underestimated. The amount of legwork and momentum you're going to get just from using a few of these psychological tools are going to be tremendous because life is psychology at its core, right? So what I view as fundamentals in self-improvement psychology are three areas, and I outlined this also in the course, cognitive social and behavioral. So cognitive psychology, obviously, is how your mind functions, and how it can execute on a day to day basis in order to achieve goals. Social can be thought of how your mind and how your brain work together to form social connections and orient yourselves in social situations and how effectively those those two can do that. And then you've got behavioral, which has to do with stuff like behavioral patterns, your your habits, your inclinations, anything that has to do with what I call quote unquote fixations of the mind. And that's a whole different subject, but those are good starting points to look at those from. So let's dive into the first category, which is cognitive. And in all of these categories, I've highlighted key aspects of these categories that obviously make up this pillar, this corner of psychology. And what it is, and some keys to developing it. So let's dive into the first one. On cognitive would be mental toughness. So mental toughness is a very key personality trait underlying success. You can't really have any form of real success without having some form of mental toughness. And if you look at all of the people who have achieved outstanding success in certain areas, they all have a certain degree of just mental toughness. You're just wondering how the hell did this guy pull that off or how did he survive that or how did he like come up out the mud like that? When you hear 
about these stories of resilience, you sort of think these guys are superhuman. But while they may have genetic advantages in certain areas, such as being taller, naturally more muscular, or able to put on muscle, or they're able to do complex problems in their head, or they're, a, they're just beasts of men, you know, these people are no different from you. And that's sort of hard to wrap your mind around, especially when you're so used to being down. But this is all latent human potential. You just have to unlock it. And in order to get to that next level of human potential, there's going to be a significant amount of pain involved. So when you're pushing through that pain barrier, got to ask yourself, how badly do you want it? As cliche as it is. And what are you fighting for? Those are two keys to pushing through that pain barrier when it comes to having mental toughness. Because in mental toughness, there's always a higher ideal. There's never something that it's self-serving. It's usually never self-serving. Mental toughness is always in pursuit of a higher ideal. So in order to develop mental toughness, you're going to need one, that higher ideal. Are you fighting for and being tough for mercy, for grace, for love, for peace, for all of these higher ideals of the better angels of our nature, as they call them? Are you fighting for that so you can you know, have a better world for, you know, your children or something like that? Or are you, um, or are you thinking about the amount of people who could have someone who's mentally tough to look up to? So just being like an idol or not an idol, um, a role model, an icon, yeah, an icon to these people, to the to the people who came from nothing, you know, are you having mental toughness for that? So that's a higher example of a higher ideal. And then the second key would be to just condition yourself to go through the pain. So going through the pain and pushing through the pain, there's something we said about that. Just have to steal your will and, you know, flex your willpower to push through that initial pain and then you recover. And then next time you can do it with less willpower, which in order to actually do that, you have to get started and you have to get started getting used to the pain. So to develop mental toughness, have a higher ideal and get used to lots of pain. Secondly, in the cognitive category would be self-discipline. Self-discipline is probably... Well, you can be mentally tough without having self-discipline and you can be... You, you can be self-disciplined without being mentally tough, but usually find that one lies in the other. So self-discipline is another contender for the top of this category. But self-discipline, as we all know, is the ability to marshal your inner resources and point them at a goal or an objective, no matter what your internal feelings about it may be, in also usually pursuit of a higher ideal because why would you be self-disciplined if you're not pushing towards the higher ideal so already 
we're hitting on this higher ideal in psychology, something to aim upwards to, which is significant because, you know, a lot of psychology was based off of a lot of religion. Um, A lot of religion is psychology. And if you look at the work that priests do or the work that yogis do or the work that that truly spiritual people do, you'll notice that it's all psychology. You're all, you're just appealing also to a person's inner nature, their inner consciousness. So, you know, it's all stemming from the same source in a sense. And it's, has, it's I call it one tree with many branches. Um, and you'll find that's the case for a lot of things in self-improvement because it really does stem from one tree but one important branch in that tree is psychology so um self-discipline knowing that you know you have to do things you have to fight for the higher ideal that's a key part of a healthy psychological disposition so the keys to developing self-discipline are again have a higher ideal to aim at And also be willing to sharpen yourself, not necessarily go through pain, but really be tough on yourself to accomplish things. And then third would be the leaving no escape. So you're creating an environment where you have to be disciplined. And a lot of people overlook this because it's so easy to overlook. But if you have an environment that's set up for playing video games, eating massive amounts of Cheetos and Lay's and all that other shit, and in addition, you have an environment where it makes it more disadvantageous to go outside than to stay inside, then why in the hell would you do anything that requires self-discipline, right? Because I'm gonna, we're going to get to this later on, but instant gratification is, I mean, overcoming that, I mean, just the amount of raw stimuli that's available in today's era, it is impossible to live a productive and fulfilling life without self-discipline. It... I mean, you can live a life, but you'll probably not like the direction it's going to take you by default. So self-discipline, definitely one of the keys of a good psychology. And moving on, we're going to go to auto-suggestion. So auto-suggestion, if you don't know about it, I've written an article about it. I'll put in the notes to this episode. But auto-suggestion is the act of suggesting... And pretty much self-talk. So it's the act of suggesting things to your subconscious and implanting instructions into your subconscious. So this is usually done in a state where you're not at full consciousness. So you're not like in your day-to-day walking mode. You'd be more in a state where you're coming out of sleep or going into sleep. So... That's when you say those commands to yourself. And then over time, the theory is you reprogram your subconscious. 
But the thing is, um, some people would say, oh, well, you know, that seems too easy, so that can't work, and this and the other, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, you got to understand that your subconscious is always listening. It is always picking up on information. It is always trying to alert your conscious mind to opportunities and dangers. And when you get excited, when you see something or somebody for no reason, your subconscious is saying, hey, there might be an opportunity here. Depending on how you programmed it, it's probably going to suggest opportunity or danger to you. So, Or it may suggest nothing, but it suggests opportunities and it suggests danger as well. Like if there's danger nearby, it will alert you to that. So your subconscious is always picking up on information. And with auto-suggestion, you take advantage of this aspect that your subconscious is always recording. And you meditate on, that's the thing, you have to focus on like the actual thing you were speaking to yourself. You have to focus on it. What would it be like if you did that? So you don't just say, I'm confident, I'm confident, I'm confident. What would it look like if you were confident? How would you feel? How would you move? How would you talk? How would you act? And then you rehearse that. That's like mental rehearsal. So that's what auto-suggestion is mainly meant to do. And mental rehearsal has been proven to be very effective at um, rewiring the subconscious and also giving instructions instructions for the body to act on at a later date. So, yeah, auto-suggestion overlooked in psychology because you're always talking to yourself and a conversation you have with yourself is the most important conversation you will ever have. So what are some keys to auto-suggestion? One, do it in a state where you're not really awake and alert. So coming out of sleep or going into sleep right before bed. Or when you induce a daytime meditation or something like that. Secondly, would be to suggest positive things to you and personal things to you. So you'd say, I'm confident. I'm charming. I am ripped. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever you want. Um, so you suggest those. And I am. So personal, present, tense. And... You do that over time. You can't just do this once and expect it to work. You got to do it over time. So, yeah, those two. Important for auto suggestion. So, let's keep moving along here. Um, attention management. Oh, so important. So important. Like I just mentioned, the amount of stimuli we have in our modern environment is just an amazing amount. Attention management is part of self discipline. But it's its own separate category because you're selectively discarding and retrieving what you want to pay attention to. So, like, for example, uh, let's say you're at a party and then there's a band playing or there's an artist playing or something. And then you're trying to listen to your friends talking. And then you're also trying to listen to this other conversation going on over there. So you're zeroing out your attention. You can either zero it out where it's all a blur or you could focus in on one after the other after the other and you selectively choose what you pay attention to. And you're going to hear certain things. Like if you're looking one way and you're listening for that, 
you're going to pick up on uh, movement and sound more easily looking that way than you would the opposite way. So you have to choose what you pay attention to. And the skill of attention management is very important because there's just so many distractions in our modern world. And if you don't practice attention management, you're going to be used for sure. You're going to be... (laughs) You're going to be a human ATM, as I call it, in our 21st century postmodern society, (laughs) right? So attention management, how you develop that? Well, one, you develop the skill of focus, which there's an entire system on how to develop focus. I'll put a link to an article that I wrote on how to develop mental focus. And you develop focus and... You you really have to try and find your center. It it's part that's part of focus, but finding your center where in every person there's this there's this part of yourself that is untouched by the outside world that's the outside world can't get to it. And it's like your inner citadel. So everything in theory, should revolve around that. But some people haven't found that and they just feel like they're aimless and rudderless. So when you're trying to choose what to pay attention to in your life and you have this inner anger, it just makes everything so much easier, like so much easier. Your ability to discern important from non-important trivial bullshit, like that increases tenfold when you find your inner anchor, right? So, attention management, make a key to develop that and find your inner, inner anchor. Moving right along, we're going to be talking about skill acquisition. Skill acquisition, I don't think, is emphasized enough because at the end of the day, you break it down, everything is a skill. Everything is a learned skill. Everything can pretty much be picked up at some level if you're a functional, competent human being. I think you can pretty much do any skill unless, like, you're limited by height. Like, for example, if you're 5'6 five, five, or 5'8, probably probably not going to be able to dunk a basketball. Um, I mean, there's people who got some mad hops, but, you know... That will probably be out of reach for you. But I mean, like in terms of just skill development and doing things like, for example, typing on a computer or playing an instrument or, you know, fixing, knowing how to fix cars like those are learned skills. Babies don't come out of the womb knowing those skills. Right. So. But people are oriented in a certain way towards certain skills, but. No one is known knowing how to code, right? So over time, what happens, though, is, you know, we get convinced that, hey, you're probably just not, you probably just can't do that. You're probably, you're probably just, you know, not cut out for that. Like people will tell other people that, hey, just because your first drawing wasn't Picasso or something, you're just a big failure like people convince you of that and there's many ways to succeed 
but the only way to success is through failure. So <laughs> if you don't fail, you're never going to succeed. So if you're afraid of failure, then success is not for you because you're going to have to trip a few times before you can walk, before you can run, before you can sprint, right? So skill acquisition in the process of acquiring skills, you're going to get hurt a lot. There's going to be a lot of failure. There's going to be a lot of fatigue. There's going to be a lot of monotony. You just accept that and you take it for what it is, right? Because you want to develop the skill more than you care to fail, right? So the keys to skill acquisition are one, repeated exposure. So you need to repeat the skill over and over and over again. So it can get physically encoded into your brain. And so your motor memory for performing that skill can start to be solidified. So, and also you're starting to form a mental map of what that skill is and how it operates in three-dimensional space, if that makes sense. So there's one thing (laughs) to read about being a surgeon or watch a movie on a surgeon, but it's another thing to actually do surgery, right? But you won't know that until you're experiencing it in three-dimensional space in real time. So that's why mental maps are important. And then you get that from repeat exposure. So that's one aspect. The other aspect would be to actually carve out the time for the skill because so many people say, oh yeah, I'm going to do such and such and so and so. And then they fall off because they didn't carve out the time, right? So it's like you're making these proclamations, but you haven't committed the time. You haven't sacrificed your time. And at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice your time to develop your skills and acquire skills? So that's another aspect, mental toughness you need to push through that sacrifice sometimes. And sometimes the sacrifice isn't even that big because you're like, oh, you know, this is just the price of admission for me to play at the certain level. And you just accept that, again, as part of the draw. So skill acquisition, one, repeat exposure, you need that. And then two, you actually need to carve out the time to do the damn thing, right? So that's it on the cognitive side. Let's go to social side social psychology and (laughs) social psychology is such a vast and deep and varied field that you could spend forever getting lost in it in the nuances and implications it has on us as a society, as a culture, as a species, etc., etc. So it's a field I have a lot of respect for and interest in. And it's something that I think you can just talk about endlessly. But when it comes to the social side, there are Three main pillars in that social side that I think make good social psychology. 
So the first one would be social intelligence. When you think about someone who is able to talk very well, someone who's able to somehow, quote-unquote, work a room, someone who is able to sense someone's true motives and intentions, someone who, you know, just is able to connect with people and also recede from people effectively as well. So knowing how to move, knowing what to say, knowing how to read the vibe of a place, all that is social intelligence. And some people actually do have a more natural predisposition to developing high levels of it, but everyone with practice can develop very high levels of it. So this is one aspect that does go very deep. So um, the key points about developing this, the keys to developing this, would be one, to develop empathy for other people. Understand what other people are feeling and under being able to understand how they are resonating to a situation and being able to imagine yourself in that situation easily is one part of being able to be socially intelligent. The second part of social intelligence would be to really have an ear to the ground approach. So you're able to really pick up on, let's say the, it's hard to really put it, call it the movement of, it's it's like watching a school of fish, being able to pick up on the movement of the school of fish And knowing that they have a pattern they move around in. So being able to notice the patterns that people move around in. And being able to use that to your advantage, to be honest. Because part of social intelligence is being able to come out on top in terms of um, a lot of things. And... Since humans are habitual creatures, you're able to use someone's patterns, habitual patterns against them by studying them and looking for, let's say, weaknesses in their patterns and exploiting that. That (laughs) that is one part of social intelligence, which is more Machiavellian, to be honest. But let's be honest, you know, a lot of people do a lot of certain things to get ahead and... That's definitely not one of the worst, but, you know, using it for good should be encouraged. So, um, the second part of social intelligence after, or second part of social psychology after social intelligence would be frame. And frame, what I describe as frame is your ability to really picture a situation in your mind's eye and have it conform to what you want you want it to be in your mind's eye just by 
your intent. And that's very, very different from what a lot of people consider frame. Because obviously frame comes from like pickup lingo where you're talking about, oh, you're framing an interaction. But I view frame as so much more because frame is pretty much the way you interact with the environment. Because if you, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you act with the frame, like let's say you have the frame of someone who's on a hike has the frame of being a good hiker and be able to hike, you know, dangerous terrain versus someone who doesn't have the frame of, oh, I'm a competent hiker who can hike dangerous terrain. The person who doesn't have that frame is more likely to get killed on that hike because they don't have that frame. They don't have that entitlement in a sense. And when you develop good frame, you're able to really impose this entitlement onto different situations just through a whole bunch of little social nuanced things you do. So it goes really, really deep, but frame is really the imposition of your will on reality in a sense. That's, that's what it is at its maximum extent. And being able to have what they call quote unquote unshakable frame, which is pretty much rock solid belief in yourself. And then you just go for it. You just go for the gusto. And those types of people who just do that, the culture ends up getting built around these people because it's like they, it's like they warp reality in a sense. And that's really crazy to think about when you think about, how some people just exist in their own reality and we're going to get to that very soon and talking about paradigms but you know how they're able to make quote-unquote reality conform to their inner reality and it's like they have just have unshakable belief they have an unshakable frame so yeah so now the keys to developing good frame maximum unshakable frame even the keys to developing this would be one to have again finding that inner center that's what really what frame is predicated on you finding that center that cannot be touched cannot be seen by other people that cannot be you know it cannot be soiled by anything. You have to find that inner center within you and make your frame, make your belief revolve around that. Because by that time, you're able to really radiate a strong intent instead of one that's scattered because someone told you to really go after this, someone else told you you should do that, someone else told you, hey, that's not a good idea, you should really try this, so your attention is split, but if you focus your attention in on that inner center, which is always ever-present, doesn't matter who's around, doesn't matter who's in your life, doesn't matter what you're told, you'll, you'll always find at the end of the day, you'll have a true north towards whatever, 
And that's really what having good frame is about, just having it centering around that. And, yeah, I mean, those are the roots of, quote-unquote, self-confidence, right? So, frame, important, 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 and important, right? So the third topic in social psychology, the final, would be the self-image. And your self-image is very... Very, very important, obviously. It is known as your inner mirror. And when you make any decision, you subconsciously consult it before you make that decision to see if it would line up with how you see yourself. And for a lot of people, how they see themselves is actually how they think others see themselves. Right. So at the end of the day, they are consciously or even unconsciously constructing a false self that which makes them a more hollow person. So at the end of the day, that's not really a road you want to go down. Nope. So your self image. Very, very important to build up, very, very important to cultivate. And What are some keys to developing a good, healthy self-image? Well, one, it would be to develop self-efficacy. So doing things that are meaningful, doing things that are challenging, doing things that are stimulating to you in a good way that make you feel alive. Those are developing good self-efficacy right so that's very very important one self-efficacy develop that two would be to see yourself what would your ideal self be who would that be what would they act like what would they feel like what would they do where would they be living what would they be driving? Who would they be? Wor- who would they be with on a day-to-day basis? And most importantly, what would make them fulfilled? And then the biggest question is, why aren't you already that person? What is what is stopping you from being that person? So you'll see that it is a gap in the self-image. So you create the self-ideal. And you make accurate steps to close that gap through whatever means you have. And then you're able to make meaningful progress in a lot of areas of self-development, right? So, the self-ideal. Trying to use that as a North Star, I think, is a good practice for developing a good self-image. knowing who you could be with enough work put in. So those are the three components of social psychology. Now we're going to move over to behavioral. So behavioral has many different aspects. Behavioral psychology is obviously how someone moves 
in the physical and mental environment, their dispositions on a day-to-day basis. That's pretty much what it is. You can sum it up as. So behavioral encompasses a lot of habits, a lot of routines, a lot of changing of patterns because that's what a lot of human activity is. Humans are very pattern-oriented, as I mentioned earlier. So being able to change those patterns and be able to get to the underlying portion of those patterns is a large part of behavioral psychology. So knowing those patterns is so important. But with behavioral psychology, you know, main parts of it that I consider are first getting over latent negativity is the first one I highlighted because, and that may sound underwhelming, but knowing that in general we live in a very negative planet and knowing that despite living in what may be the best time in human history, there's still a lot of negativity just around and doomsday just around. And, you know, just in general, everybody has a negative bias talking about, oh, recession this, recession that, blah, 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 or whatever, whatever. You know, people. it's like people want bad stuff to happen. People want the drama. They just want the drama, the chaos, everything. So there's just a lot of negativity latent in people to even consider that as permissible, right? So I think for a lot of people just getting over a lot of things that just happened and created this negativity within them is going to take them a long way. But, you know, that takes a lot of work. And, you know, getting rid of that negativity bias that a lot of people have. So, first to getting over this would be to really... (laughs) as stupid as this sounds, is is expose yourself to the light. And you have to make it a duty to seek out the positive. You have to make it a duty to seek out the wins every day. You should be notating your wins down every day. That's a key part of building a positive self-image psychology. Just notating when... You actually do something well instead of just beating yourself down all the time. Your your psychology, I mean, it needs work to build up because you have a negative bias by default. So you're going to, by default, beat yourself down. You're never going to raise yourself up. you got to make a conscious effort to do that. So you do that through, you know, just looking for positive in your environment, and you look for wins. That's how you start. When you notate that the down, changes your life. I'm telling you. So, yeah. 
mean, one is you just got to look for the light, which is the wind, which is the, you know, thank thank God you're, you're alive, you know, so just looking for the winds and the silver linings, right? And for two, the second one, we got to talk about really making negativity unacceptable in your life. And that's really something a lot of people haven't really thought about, obviously, because a lot of people are negative. But we're actually a lot of people, some people, a good amount of people have thought about this saying, oh, I'm not going to allow that back in my life. But blah, 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 blah. Six months later, it's back in their life. So they didn't make a hard stance against it. A lot of people don't want to make a hard stance against negativity because, you know, they like the drama. Again, they need the drama. They need the chaos. They need the confusion, right? So that's why these things are acceptable. And in order to really get rid of just latent negativity in your life, you have to really make it a point to, do, to not invite it into your life. You don't just say, oh, yeah, hey, you know, come on in. No, you don't do that. You make a stand. You just make a very firm stand and make a firm, very firm decision saying you're not going to indulge in that bullshit. So the day you do that, I tell you, it'll change your life. That's all I'm going to say. So. Um, let's go to shifting paradigms and yeah. So for negativity, lane negativity, obviously one looking for the wins, looking for the gold in life period. And then two making negativity unacceptable. So the second object of interest in our behavioral psychology map would be the concept of shifting paradigms or paradigms in general. So there is an entire module in the Cornerstone devoted to these concepts in psychology, but one of the key modules in that module itself, or one of the key lessons in that module itself, is the one on paradigms. And paradigms, I go all in depth of what the paradigm is, how it operates, how it's nested within other things. <clears throat> and I just try and give the paradigm, you know, it's, it's due and it's respect for just itself as a concept. So the concept of paradigms is important to any discussion of psychology so very simply put a paradigm is from is the level at which you view certain situations at like for example if you are standing at the top of the empire state building you're looking down into the street and someone else on that same street is looking from street level, just looking across. You're both looking at the same point on the street, but you both have different perspectives. So 
eventually your perspectives inform your conclusions about the world and your conclusions about the world inform your perspective so it's a it's a um it's a continuous it's a feedback loop you know one reinforces the other so that's why when you're in a certain paradigm it's so hard to jump out of it right so that's why when you have the opportunity to really seek out some sort of thing, something that will just shake you out of your rut if you're in a rut, because that's what a paradigm is. It's self-reinforcing. So if you're trying to get to a certain level, what is probably keeping you at the level you're at is the paradigm through which you view the world through and in addition to the fact that certain things are just inaccessible to other levels of a paradigm. Like, for example, you may view a certain level of consciousness. Someone views $1 million as just something that's dirty and quote-unquote sinful and something that ruins the world. And at another plane of consciousness... Someone views $1 million as just spending money, just using it to flex on people, buying cars, buying nights out with girls and bottle service and, you know, expensive stuff and lofts and lofts in the city and, you know, all this expensive stuff. And, you know, that's one level. Then the other level is... Oh, one million dollars. I'm going to use it in a profitable way for humanity or my community. I'm going to use it as a way to give back to the system that gave back to me. And you think of it from that perspective. So those are all three different paradigms of the concept of one million dollars, right? So depending on what level of the paradigm you're at, certain ways of thinking are not even going to be a blip on your radar. So that's why the paradigm can be so self-reinforcing. And that's why when you are noticing that you're getting different feedback from just different people and you start to really think about it and think about what they're saying. What are they saying? What are they actually meaning by this? You start to come to a conclusion like, oh, if you're self-aware, which part of shifting paradigms requires self-awareness because you need to have the self-awareness to go through the discipline of shifting paradigms, right? So, but when you do have self-awareness, you're like, oh, you know, all of this composite information I'm getting, it's telling me I need to change some things here or tweak some things here, or maybe I'm doing certain a certain cool thing here, certain good thing there, but, you know, a certain thing isn't over here. I mean, that's that's pretty much what the essence of coaching is because you have an objective third party monitoring your progress, trying to get you to improve and become the best version of yourself. But obviously when you have random people just 
comments. It could be trash or it could be actual something that's actually used for self-improvement. It could be a jewel of discernment. So pretty much all of that is determinant on how you view the world and your paradigm and your level of consciousness. So that's why one of the key things in self-improvement is like raising your consciousness and raising your ability to be self-aware, right? So the keys to shifting paradigms very quickly. I'm going to try and keep this quick, under an hour. <laughs> the keys to shifting paradigms would be to really focus on, again, the self-ideal. This is where the self-ideal comes into play. So focus on the self-ideal, focus on the person who you would want to be at your best. Focus on that. Secondly, would be to get feedback. Outside feedback is so, so, so important. You have to know where you are strong and where you are weak. And you get outside feedback to help you with that. Outside feedback on your performance in different areas could be social could be you know physical like if you have a spotter at the gym they said you know I think you could have gone for a couple more reps there someone who's like a coach someone who could again spot out your flaws and self-development so so many things right so knowing that you're getting that outside feedback is definitely going to help you in your paradigm shift and those are the main two I would mention for shifting paradigms and the self-ideal manufacturing that the ideal state who you would be is so, so, so important. So the third one, third and final one would be behavioral change. And this has to do with changing your habits, changing your ability to operate in the world on a day-to-day basis and your ability to express yourself in the manner you want in a habitual and easier manner. That's pretty much what's behind behavioral change. Fluidity of action from knowledge into action. And if we could all do that, if we all change the habits, the fluidity of our habits changing or fluidity of our action changing into habits, we would definitely have a, you know, much easier time in life, all of us. So that's a key aspect of behavioral change. And the keys to changing your behaviors. One, again, repetition. Repetition repetition is important. Repeat the action that you want to happen over and over and over and over again until it becomes a habit. Two is to know what you want to change, set a goal for how you want to change them and what time frame and what you will do to the leading to three, implementation intention. Have an implementation intention on when you're going to do this thing so it can become a habit. Like if you say you're going to go to the gym at five every day, get an accountability partner to get your ass to the gym so they can be there to do the workout and that's your implementation intention every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at five and you stick to it and it eventually becomes a habit. 
So those are the three pillars of behavioral change. Know what you want to change, repeat it, and apply your intention, implementation and intention. So that's about it. And I told you I was going to try and stick to under an hour. (laughs) So that's it for the Psychology Manifesto. Again, appreciate you for listening in. And if you like this episode, you can head on over to Twitter and follow at UnstopRise, posting daily, frequently, sometimes hourly, and it's been popping. So that's where a lot of the time is spent. Or you could check out the written content on www.unstoppablerise.com where there are more articles on the vein of psychology and there's also a entire module in the cornerstone dedicated to psychology so cornerstone is the course unstoppable rise is the site unstop rise is twitter so that's all she wrote and until next time Take care, and of course, if you don't mind, it won't matter. Peace.